I think it's pretty clear that even without the Bo Xilai scandal and Ling Jihua scandal, you know, leaders like Xi Jinping knew in a general sense what was happening in these institutions that were being rotted from within by corruption and cronyism, and so that there was a general sense that something had to be done about it. I think what the um, Bo Xilai and Ling Jihua scandals did is to add public impetus to that program and to demonstrate to the Chinese public more widely about just how serious corruption was becoming. Bo Xilai, 10 years on. To discuss, we have on longtime New York Times reporter Chris Buckley and author and Chongqing Ren, Sujun Everline. Also co-hosting is Alex Boyd, former China Talk producer and a perennially deferring Yenqing scholar. Welcome to China Talk, everyone. So let's start off. Bo Xilai, who is this guy? What's his personal and political backstory? We start with offering just a general background about Bo Xilai. Uh, I guess the, the first point about understanding why and how he became such a, an important feature in Chinese politics in the mid-2010s is uh, his background. And the thumbnail description of Bo Xilai is that he was a princeling. In other words, he was uh, one of the children of one of the leaders who rose to power with Mao Zedong during the Cultural Revolution. And that gave him a, a particular special status in, in Chinese political life. And uh, that partly helps to explain why he became such an important figure in the mid-2010s. So he is the son of Bo Yibo, who was a revolutionary who became uh, a major financial official in China after the founding of the PRC. He is the second, I believe, of four children. And uh, so he grew up in that very uh, strange, rarefied atmosphere that princelings uh, grew up in in Beijing during those years. I think in one sense, it was an extremely privileged background in the sense that you were in or around Zhongnanhai, the party, the party compound. Uh, most of your friends, most of your classmates had similar official backgrounds. Uh, and so you grew up with a level of privilege and, and protection that ordinary Chinese people didn't enjoy. At the same time, there was a great deal of pressure on you as a princeling to demonstrate that you were part of that revolutionary heritage. In other words, that you were worthy of carrying on the revolutionary tradition. So I think that that, that helps to explain who Bo Xilai was. He was born in 1949. Uh, which is also important because, of course, he grew up at the very birth of the, of the People's Republic, which also means that he came of age during the Cultural Revolution. So precisely at the time when Bo Xilai was uh, an adolescent uh, going into uh, high school, that's when uh, Mao Zedong la launched the Cultural Revolution. And I think that was one of the, the other defining episodes in Bo Xilai's life. Uh, he was studying in, in Beijing at a, the number four high school, a uh, very prestigious uh, high school that had a lot of princelings in it, as well as a lot of other bright boys. I think it was mostly boy, all boys then um, from other backgrounds. And when the Cultural Revolution broke out, when Mao Zedong ordered uh, young students to become cultural revolution radicals, red guards, pursuing his agenda of cleansing the revolution of traitors and turncoats. Uh, number four school was one of those places where a number of those red, red guard groups emerged. And Borchelai 
wasn't necessarily in the center of all that action, but he was certainly a witness to it and ultimately suffered from it as well. Uh, he'd also spent uh, four or five years in a re-education camp, uh, I think it's called Camp 798, uh, which was specifically for the re-education of um, errant princelings. Uh, so in other words, it was a, a re-education camp that was set up to, uh, to re-educate these um, sons of, of, of senior officials who had fallen out with um, the correct line in Mao's Cultural Revolution. Uh, so after that, he then works in a factory in Beijing for a few years. And then when the Cultural Revolution ends, Mao Zedong dies, that's when Bo Xilai and his generation start the march into universities and then into power. And that begins with Bo Xilai studying uh, history at Peking University. And then perhaps tellingly for the rest of his career, he studies journalism for a while at the Academy of Social Sciences. And then uh, he does what a number of um, children of senior officials do. Um, he, after um, graduating from university in Cass, he goes to work in Zhongnanhai in the party headquarters. And he has a junior job. I think it's in the policy research office of the central committee. So in, a, in other words, the, the policy formulation office of, of the party leadership. Um, so, th so that brings us, I think, to the early 1980s. And then Bo Xilai, like somebody else we're going to mention, makes a kind of unusual decision. He decides to head right down to the grassroots of, of, of power in China, down to the county level to become a local official. And in his case, he is assigned to work in Liaoning province in Northeast China, which is, becomes his base for the, the next two decades, more or less. And uh, he begins to build his credentials as an official from the grassroots upward, uh, first as a county official, then most importantly for the rest of his career as a city official, then, uh, then mayor of Dalian, the main port city in Liaoning province. Now, I mentioned um, uh, this unusual choice of going down to the grassroots to work at that point. Another then obscure princeling official who did the same was called Xi Jinping. And so at about the same time that Bo Xilai is heading to Liaoning province to start his career, to burnish his credentials as, as an official from the grassroots upward, Xi Jinping is doing the same thing first in Hebei province and then over in uh, Fujian on, on the coast as well. So the two of them have parallel careers that take them through uh, their respective provinces. It, it, it's funny, this moves like, you know, you're, you're at the fancy school, you go to PKU, you hang out with the central committee for a little while. And then it's like your two years of TFA or you're like uh, you're Pete Buttigieg's like I served in the military type thing. It's like, you know, you're 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 checking your box of going out with the um, uh, going out with the people. Um, I always found that to be like an interesting little little parallel yeah. the kind of credential building. Um, but it's like you're, you're patenting yourself on Mao right back in the um, uh, uh, back in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, there is that. And I think especially during the late 1980, uh, the early 1980s, sorry, you know, uh, rural China, um, provincial China was where the action was. Sure. So, you know, uh, what we come to know as reform and opening up really begins with uh, reforms in the countryside, uh, the huge growth in rural enterprises as well. So if you're a young, ambitious official, um, you know, part of you wants to be there. 
part of that process. I think that helps explain it as well. All right. So now coming to uh, coming up to Chongqing times, Chris, what's your take? Well, uh, before Chongqing, we have almost 17 years in Dalian, uh, the, the port city. And that's important because, uh, you, know, um, you know, I have family from Northeast China from around there as well. And just as many Chongqing people have vivid and sometimes positive memories of Bo Xilai, so do people in Dalian. Uh, yeah, uh, he seemed to sense uh, that that there were as China was beginning to open up to become a little more politically diverse and relaxed, there was uh, an opportunity uh, for more ambitious politicians to sort of break the mold a little from the sort of the the state party apparatchnik and to establish a, a political profile for themselves. And that's what he began to do in, in Dalian, even before Chongqing. So just as he cleaned up uh, Chongqing later, he also cleaned up uh, Dalian as well. And, and, um, and so part of the Bo Xilai that we later saw active in Chongqing, it hones his skills as a local politician in Dalian, even before he arrives in, in Chongqing in 2007. Um. Anything else on the, uh, let's do maybe a little one, maybe three or four more minutes on the, on the time in Chongqing and then we'll start to get into the downfall and legacy or should we, or should we just go right there now? Sure. I, I, I might just say a few things about Chongqing as a, an outside visitor to the place during those years, which is, you know, um, people who haven't been to Chongqing, um, should probably go onto Google and just Google for pictures of the place because it's an extraordinary city. It's uh, perched on the banks of, of the Yangtze River. Uh, the, um, the sides of the river are extremely steep. So what you have is this enormous industrial metropolis on, sort of perched on the sides of this very steep river, uh, of, these, of this river on very steep um, hillsides. And so what it creates is sort of this um, effect of sort of being high up above the river there, um, um, people who have been to Chongqing would have noticed that people developed very sturdy legs from walking up and down all the stairs. And uh, it also had that reputation that sometimes comes with being a port city of being uh, a little gritty, a little corrupt, uh, a little messy. And uh, Chongqing was a lot of those things before Bo Xilai came there. It had also, uh, remember, had been up until recently part of um, Sichuan province. It hadn't been an in independently um, uh, uh, autonomous metropolis. And so that meant it was sort of a, a, um, a poorer sibling to Chengdu, the, um, the capital of, of Sichuan as well. So all of that counted against um, um, Chongqing. And then Bo Xilai arrives there in 2007 after tenure as Minister of Commerce, something else we can talk about, and he starts to leave his imprint on the city. Great. Um, all right, you, you want to do two minutes on the Minister of Commerce stuff? So by the early 2000s, Bo Xilai has spent almost two decades in, in Liaoning province, largely in Dalian, and then as a provincial leader of Liaoning province. Uh, it's quite, it seems quite clear that he had um, harbored hopes then, then of entering the central leadership um, 
in some ways, his background and his sometimes abrasive personality may have counted against him. Um, but he became Minister of Commerce, I think it was in 2002, which uh, these days the Minister of Commerce doesn't count for that much in China, I don't think. But back then, that was a bigger deal, in particular because China had just entered uh, the World Trade Organization. So you may remember back then, there was always these um, um, cases coming up of um, the European Union and the United States in particular, objecting to these surges of Chinese products that were entering their markets at that time, in particular, um, garments, clothes, and, and other goods like that. So Bo Xilai, having honed his um, um, media skills in Dalian, then got another opportunity to do it as Minister of Commerce. And I was uh, a journalist with Reuters then struggling to do reporting sometimes on commerce issues and, and trade disputes. And you could tell that Bo Xilai just loved to be in the limelight there with the uh, American trade officials or Peter Mandelson from the EU, uh, you know, marching out of these of these conferences and um, speaking to the press, uh, sort of having combative jabs with his uh, foreign counterparts. And you would often see him uh, at these meetings, trade meetings, WTO meetings, um, you know, enjoying some of the limelight as well. Uh, so that's when I first had my first uh, direct encounters with him as well. Uh, the other thing that people say about him as Minister of Commerce is that while he was honing this uh, very personable, telegenic uh, presence to the public, he was a very, very hard boss and a very difficult boss. And uh, you heard that uh, sometimes privately from Commerce uh, Ministry of Commerce officials that you know, they, they wouldn't say too much about their boss, but they would let you know that it wasn't the easiest place to work. Uh, Chris or Sujun, do you think I could get either of you to do, uh, to do a bossy lie impression? I can't give you an impression. I can give you an anecdote. Sure. Um, when I just joined Reuters, um, uh, I was asked to go to Hong Kong to help cover the big WT negotiations that were, that were taking place there. Actually, forget even the year at this point. Anyway, um, so I, I spent a great deal of fruitless time chasing around the Chinese delegation, including Bo Xilai, getting no answers on any questions from, from them. But uh, the day after the, the, um, that meeting ended, um, very predictably, the day after it ends, Borshilai decides to hold a press conference. I'd been up all night that working, so I woke up like minutes before the press conference was about to start. I had to pull on a pair of pants, um, put on a jacket, rush to this press conference by taxi. I didn't even have time to... Um, to take off my pajama bottoms, uh -oh. so I turn up at this press conference with uh, with my terrible-looking um, suit, with my pajama bottoms showing from the bottom. I just remember Boyce. When I ask the question, Boyce, I looks me up and down, cocks an eyebrow, and I forget exactly what it what he said, but he says, "Aha, foreigner," and then gives his answer. <laughs> So that was my, my first humiliating encounter with Bo Xilai. So Sujun, what else, uh, what, other, what other parts of, um, parts of Bo Xilai's time particularly stuck out to you? I never saw him in person, but it, when he first arrived in Chongqing, I heard a lot of good words 
and like it, I there it, it was everywhere people were talking about it and also and on the internet that one Boshi Lai left Dalian and many people were saying Terry goodbyes because they didn't want him to leave Dalian. I heard a lot of things like that. So at first I really had a very high expectation thought. Oh, so people like the game, maybe he would be a good um mayor. I I I really had that thought at the time. But soon after he start he started the crackdown on gangsters, so-called gangsters. And I was still cheering that he arrested the the then police head, the police head before on it. But I was very surprised they executed him. I, that really surprised me. And I thought, that's really unusual. And then soon, you know, Chongqing government under Bo Xinlai executed more than 10 people in a very quick succession. And that was very unusual because for years, Chongqing hadn't executed that many people in a very short time. I mean, those people were blamed the gangsters, but we didn't say Nichuanyu or Nathan. And the, and my friends told me those people mostly were local businessmen. And the one reason Chongqing people suspected that uh, Bo Xinlai carried on the uh, crackdown, real purpose was to fill the the budget hole in the government. Um, let me say 2010, 2010, there was a big deficit in Chongqing's government money. So they really seized uh, money from those uh, business, local businessmen and the, the execution made it possible for them to take all the money into the government's pocket. And the, the, the planting trees alone spent 10 billion, can you believe? 10 billion of RMB then at the time. It's, they really spend the time like water in, during the four years. And the, the execution was the biggest alarm to me as an observer, you know. Uh, Chongqing's newspaper reported on those exclusions, local newspaper. So I think you just touched on this. And um, let's let's talk about Bo Xilai's Strike the Black campaign, which was this crime crackdown, um, which we already touched on earlier. Xi Jinping obviously launched the Sweep the Black campaign during his time in office. So how is Bo's anti-crime crackdown both a predecessor and quite different from the national crime crackdown that was launched under Xi Jinping? Sometime, I think, in 2017. Um, either, of, either of you would be great. I might have, I'll have a first crack at answering that. Um, so if there's one thing that can be said about Bo Xulai, it's that he has very acute political antennae. And he arrives in Chongqing at a time when Chinese economy is growing at breakneck pace, an extraordinary rate. Uh, also at a time when there's a lot of unease, discontent building up in the Chinese population about crime, 
about inequality, about corruption. And uh, whatever he's doing in his private life, which we'll talk about later, he senses that there's a public appetite there uh, for officials to show that they're doing something about it. And so what we see very quickly once he arrives in Chongqing is this campaign against organized crime uh, in which he takes down uh, local business people who are accused of um, belonging to criminal syndicates, but also the officials who are accused of being their uh, patrons as well, uh, including the one who Xu Jun mentioned. I think his name is Wen Qiang, was the public security official who was, um, no, who was taken down in extraordinary circumstances and then I think executed as well. Uh, at the time, uh, the campaign was also generating a lot of uh, domestic attention in China, uh, good press for Bo Xilai, and it seemed to be popular, uh, not merely with people in Chongqing, but also with the wider public as well. And uh, even after Bo Xilai's um, uh, fall from power, even after the revelations came out about all of the abuses in the campaign, it was certainly still common to come across people in Chongqing who thought it was a good thing to do and still thought it was the right thing to do. So it's one of those things where you can find the public sentiment, uh, especially among sort of um, uh, working people in China can be very different from sort of elite opinions. It was much more dismayed about the abuses of the campaign. And is very different between working people and the people who have access to more information than the working people. Like, uh, and, you know, journalists, writers, professionals, and the government uh, employees. They really had quite different opinion about the Boshilai than the working people who had never seen him in person. I did lots of interviews and even when Bo Xilai was still in power, I talked to many people and I really got this impression that opinions are divided. Working people like people, mm. you know, bang bang jun on the streets, you know, carrying stuff for people. They, and the taxi drivers I talked to, they really like the Bo Xilai's uh, style, like crack down, singing red songs, but uh, educated people and the uh, um, people who have access to more information, I didn't hear anything good. I mean, I wouldn't say anything. Let's be a little bit more correct, accurate. I didn't hear much good words from those people about the Bushina. I might, might just jump in and uh, uh, the other episode in Chongqing that defines Bo Xilai's style there very early is the taxi strike in 2012. Is it 2012 as well? well that Xu Jin could talk about as well. But that was another episode in Chongqing that gets a little forgotten now that really established his national profile as well. That was a 2008 when he came to... Oh, 2008, Chongqing. sorry. Yeah. Right. When, um, when Bo Xilai first came to Chongqing, and so the taxi drivers for all the years I visited Chongqing always complained that they got very little income and the most money were taken by 
the company in which you rented it in the car. Um, so there was a strike when Bo Xilai just arrived in Chongqing, but it is a time he was in Beijing. He was in Chongqing when the strike started. So when he came back, he hold a, like a public, like a TV journalist was there too, cameras there. And so he treated the taxi driver apparently in respect during the meeting. That's what was shown on the TV and in the newspaper. But it, so I was in the U.S. at the time. When I saw the news, I thought, well, so maybe Boshilai is a different official. That's, that's, that was what I thought at the time. But later, in one of the people who attended that meeting was arrested during the crackdown. Um, my journalist friends told me because that person during the meeting, which of course wasn't in the report, he talked to Bo Xilai very directly and without uh, like uh, due respect or something. So Bo Xilai got really mad at him, but he didn't show. So later that person was arrested during the crackdown. So after I heard those things, I thought that that was more like a show rather than something substantial. All right, let's turn to the downfall. Should we start with Neil Haywood, Chris? Who is he and how did he get mixed up in all of this? The best and maybe the only way I can sort of begin to explain what happened in 2012 and what it was like is to go back and just piece together what the events were that began to crack open what was happening in Chongqing at the time. Uh, because although the Chinese political system was more open then, it's still very secretive. And what happened in Chongqing only broke out in these extraordinary episodes. And therefore, the role of Neil Haywood and his death only came out in, um, you know, in fits and starts over a few months. So if we go back to early 2012 on February 6. Uh, that's when the world begins to get the first inkling that something is drastically amiss in Chongqing. Because that's over that day and the day after, I think, that's when the news begins to emerge that Wang Jun, until very recently, the high-profile police chief of Chongqing, had fled to the United States consulate in nearby Chengdu city. And he was holed up inside the consulate, hoping to escape to the United States and claim asylum. And that news, like a lot of the news that came out of Chongqing subsequently, came out in this sort of mystifying rumors that uh, at first seemed too incredible to be true, then turned out to be largely true, and then opened up even more questions about what was happening in Chongqing. And so uh, Wang Lijun flees into the embassy, and then there are negotiations happen that ultimately lead to him uh, leaving, uh, sorry, the consulate, that, that, mean, that lead to him leaving the consulate and putting himself in the hands of police officials, state security officials from Beijing. And at that point, I don't think anybody, perhaps only a very few people, had any idea that this was all related to the, the death 
as it turned out, the murder of Neil Haywood, a British businessman who'd been doing, um, had been working in various capacities for the Borshilai family, and particularly for Borshilai's wife, Gulkailai, ever since uh, it's, uh, they were in Liaoning province in Indalian. So um, unlike other journalists, I didn't know Neil Haywood at all when he was in Beijing, but he was this um, well-educated, private school-educated Englishman who had set himself up in Beijing as a consultant. And he drove around town in a Jaguar. He consulted for a number of large companies, uh, especially British companies. But it also turned out that he had um, close relations with the Borshilai family as well and acted as, um, it seems, as a kind of agent for them, uh, somebody who helped them to, for example, um, it seems getting their, their son, Bo Guagua, into the right schools in Britain and helping out with their business needs as well. So he was a, a foreigner who was acting as a sort of a, a fairly low-level fixer for the, for, for the Bushi Lai family. Until um, Wang Jun fled to the U.S. consulate in Chengdu, none of that was known. And in my memory, what we be began to know about Nil Haywood's role only came out in these sort of mystifying rumors and hints bit by bit. And when the rumors started to come out that he'd actually been poisoned uh, by some people said by Borshalai, some people said by Gukailai, it seemed so extraordinary that it was one of those rumors that you thought, oh, that can't be true. China's just so awash with rumors these days. This is just a, another crazy story from the, from the rumor mill. So I remember sort of um, beginning to get involved in the reporting of all of this back then and you know, listening to these um, stories that people were sharing, including people in Chongqing, with a sort of air of sort of that um, naive incredulity that foreigners can sometimes bring to these things. And so we only began to learn about um, um, Neil Haywood's death um, in fits and starts, as I said. And um, it was only during those, those dramatic months of February, March into the National People's Congress and subsequently that the full picture began to emerge. So it is a time, in, you know, right after uh, Wang Lijun's uh, escape to Chengdu, I visited Chongqing almost just right after that. And the talk of Tommy at the time, although it's all in whispers, it wasn't really public yet, was that uh, and after Wang Lijun found out about uh, the British Jimmy's death, he went to Boshilai's office trying to get us some, I don't know, benefits from covering this Boshilai. Talked to Boshilai and the talk of tongue was, I don't know, I don't know if this is verifiable. That Boshilai slapped only on his face. Mm. And that was the reason he decided to run away. That's, that's what it, the people who told him this, including local journalists and the writers, but it, they wouldn't want to tell me their uh, sources, so <laughs> I don't really know. The other thing to remember about all of this is that this is happening in early 2012. 
And if there's one thing we know about Borchelet is that he exuded ambition. And he exuded ambition, obviously, to join the next central leadership, not necessarily as top leader, but certainly as one of the top handful of leaders. And so this is a, a time in the Chinese political cycle when there's a great deal of um, uh, contention, negotiation, uh, horse trading about who is going to go into the next central leadership. And we don't know exactly what Bo Xilai's uh, ambitions were, but it does seem to pretty clear that he wanted to be a powerful member of the next central leadership and perhaps most likely wanted to take over from Zhou Yongkang as the next leader of the domestic um, policing and security apparatus. So this is all breaking out at the very worst time for Bo Xulai. Uh, this breakdown of relations between Gu Kailai, Gu Kailai and Neil Haywood, the death of Neil Haywood, it's all happening at a time that uh, if it came out uh, would be fatal to Borchelai's chances of getting into the next central leadership. So I think that's part of the context which is happening here as well, that insofar as Wang Lijud is involved in a cover-up of Neil Haywood's death, that is an enormous political asset for anybody who knows about all of that. So let's, let's, let's finish the narrative through, the, um, uh, through his eventual court case. Um, how, does this, um, uh, uh, how, do, how does this all end for, for Bo? Well, it ends in extraordinarily dramatic fashion. And if you go back to February, that's um, from February onward, these um, stories are beginning to emerge about uh, the death of Neil Haywood, um, the possible role of the family uh, and Gu Kailai in Neil Haywood's death. While all of this is going on, Bo Xilai is maintaining a semblance of normality. And he remains a high-profile politician. He remains the party secretary of Chongqing. And so when the National People's Congress comes around in early March, just as he does every year, he turns up at the National People's Congress. And in previous years, he'd, he'd always been sort of a very high-profile high, high politician at these events, uh, you know, stopping to give doorstops for uh, for for um, for journalists, foreign and Chinese, uh, giving um, press conferences for Chongqing, which attracted attracted large numbers of journalists interested in what was happening there. Um, but this particular NPC was very different because now it was happening at a time when this scandal was beginning to um, break out and. Uh, there was already an investigation underway that, as we learned subsequently, was pointing very directly to Borchulai and his family. So he was under enormous pressure then, but somehow he still managed to maintain this veneer of, uh, of normality. And one of the most extraordinary episodes during that uh, National People's Congress in early March is that there were a couple of days when Borchulai disappeared from proceedings and nobody was quite sure why. And there were rumors then that he was uh, soon to fall. He could be in serious trouble. But then, uh, I forget what day, but a few days before the end of the National People's Congress, uh, Boishelai calls uh, a press conference in the Great Hall of the People 
in which he gives um, an hours-long defense of himself and his policies in Chongqing to a packed room of journalists. Uh, and I, I was in, for the, in there for that. And I remember coming out of that thinking, this guy is so confident. He must know that the central leadership has his back. Otherwise, he wouldn't have walked in and out of that room with a sort of air of cocky confidence that um, that that right was on his side and he was going to get through this. And uh, I remember thinking then that, oh, this looks like Borchelay is going to survive all of this. Uh, and that was a few days before the end of the National People's Congress. At the very end of that um, uh, National People's Congress, Premier Wen Jiabao gives a press conference in which um, I think he discloses for the first time just the the level of unhappiness with Boishelai within the leadership. He makes these very pointed warnings about Boishelai's political ambitions and in particular um, makes a pointed warning about politicians uh, uh, who are tempted to go back to the past in China and to uh, revive, you know, some of the policies and practices of the Cultural Revolution years. And so th then again, the, the, the pendulum shifts, uh, shifts again, and you start thinking, well, what, what is going on now? Borshilai may be in trouble. What I didn't expect after that news conference ended, though, was that Borshilai would be deposed from power and uh, you know, detained the next day, the very next day after that news conference. So obviously, while all of this is happening in the Great Hall of the People, in the National People's Congress, uh, there are movements behind the scenes that means that uh, the central leadership, at some point during those weeks or days, reaches the decision that uh, the criminal case against Gukalai and Boishalai is so damning and that Borshalai has conducted himself in a way that is so dangerous that he has to be taken down. And that's what they did. Um, so I guess in 2012, uh, Chris, you were the one who asked the question uh, that got Wen Jiabao to uh, speak, if I believe correctly, right? If I have my history right, that you asked the question and then he talked about the Wang Lijun incident? Yes, that's right. It was the last question that the... Um, of the MPC presser. MPC presser, yeah. Um, first of all, was that a pre-screened question? Second of all, um, what sort of reaction did Wen's response inspire within the party? Yeah, that, that was the very first and the very only time that I attended um, the annual Premier's News Conference at the National People's Congress. <laughs> and it was the very first, and I fear it will be the very only time that I got to ask a question. Um, and it is, it is a go out with a bang, Chris. I mean, come on. <laughs> we're talking about it 10 years later. I think you, I think you did all right for yourself. And it, it was a very complicated issue because, um, I was, um, a reporter for Reuters back then. And I, I'd been chosen to attend the news conference at not, not the very last minute, minute, but just a day or two before. And, um, just a few days before, uh, for for logistical reasons that have nothing to do with politics. And anyway, um, there'd already been some discussion about what questions should be asked at the news conference. But when I was told I, I would have a chance to go to the news conference, uh, 
inevitably the Chinese officials involved in the organization asked, well, what would you like to ask about? And I said, look, there's only one thing that matters at this NPC. <laughs> and it's a question, you know, <laughs> what is happening in Chongqing and what is going to happen to Bo Xilai? Now, literally, that was the only news issue that really mattered at that National People's Congress that year. And so, you know, I, I was fairly candid with them. I said, look, if, if I raise my hand, uh, you'll have to know that I'm going to ask a question about Bo Xilai, because if I don't ask a question about Bo Xilai, I would never live it down among my friends. Uh, you know, it would just be such a capitulation to have an opportunity to ask about it and not to ask about it. So, um, no, the, the question, in other words, didn't come out of the blue for them. I didn't know what was going to happen in the news conference, but I just kept raising my hand and I thought I'd lost my chance. But then at the very end of an extended news conference, uh, I was asked to put a question to Premier Wen Jiabao. And because there'd already been some discussion about asking about local government debt of all things, I asked that question, but then I said, as well as that, I would like to ask about what's been going on in Chongqing. And Wen Jiabao then gave a response to that question. And if you go back and have a look at the video, I think it's kind of interesting in that the, the first half of the answer is kind of formulaic. He says that, uh, you know, the Wang Yijun incident, incident is under investigation and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the outcomes will be uh, released in due course. And then there's kind of a pause in his, um, in his comments. And then I, he sort of shifts into a more personal mode. And then he, he moves on to this warning about China not returning to its um, discredited past. And I forget exactly the wording, but he did refer to the historical resolution of 1981, uh, whereby the Communist Party um, disavowed the Cultural Revolution and said that the, the lessons of that uh, historical resolution should not be forgotten. I think, you know, as I was just, as I was saying earlier, you know, that was the point where, where my having thought that Bo Xilai may may survive this scandal, I thought, wow, that was quite an answer. What is going on here? Over the coming weeks, um, Bo Xilai could be in trouble. And then, of course, it turned out that the, uh, the very next day, Bo Xilai is removed from power. What I did hear from somebody even Chongqing subsequently is that the uh, apparently, the, the, I think we're getting a little bit into rumor here, but I'll just put it out there anyway. Uh, apparently, like um, while all of that is happening with the news conference, there is movement behind the scenes to begin, I guess, confining Bo Xilai. And the moves against him are happening that day, and it's announced the following day. But what's happening meantime is that the hundreds of delegates from Chongqing to the National People's Congress are flying back to Chongqing not knowing about all of this, not knowing that what Wen Jiabao is about to say in his press conference. And when they arrive back in Chongqing, of course, their, their phones and their, their messages start buzzing and it's like, Boy Shilai is gone. And so they have to frantically sort of uh, rewrite all their press releases from the National People's Congress, all of which, of course, feature Boy Shilai and his comments and doings. And so, so what about... What what were the neuralgic points that he hit on? You alluded to this idea of, of him being bringing back cultural revolution style, uh, like a style of governance. Um, but what was what was it? Um, was it was it just simply a power struggle? And 
um, you know, there can't be two, two tigers on the mountain or was there some, uh, you know, more fundamental, uh, challenge to the sort of way of being that the, that the CCP had developed in the post Mao era, uh, that, uh, the kind of rest of the system had enough antibodies to, to want to reject. It comes down to the question about whether Boishulai would have fallen anyway, or whether this was a sort of a political power play. Is that, is that right, Jordan? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, we, from the outside, we conjecture about this, but it seems to me that even by the standards of Chinese elite politics, what happened in Chongqing in late 2011 with the murder of Neil Haywood it was going to be uh, an enormous problem, a politically fatal problem for any leader who was implicated in something like that. So in that way, I think that whoever had been the leader in Chongqing at that time, it would have been a, you know, very difficult to politically survive after that. It's probably true, though, that given that Boishelai was such a contentious figure in Chinese politics at that time, somebody who was seen as uh, um, exuding personal ambition somebody who was seen as sort of exuding this sense that in some sense he was a better politician, a better leader than the heir apparent Xi Jinping. Somebody like that was also going to be stomped on because of those political factors as well. So I think those two things converge to help explain why Borshalai falls so abruptly uh, with the um, murder and surrounding scandal around uh, Neil Haywood. And, and so I, I, I don't think it's possible to separate that, those two things out. So I certainly think it's true that Xi Jinping would think he's, he, he, he doesn't need to learn any lessons from anybody like Bo Lai. I think it's probably also true to say, though, that Chinese politics was undergoing changes during the, the late 2010s and up to 2012. So after this period of extraordinary economic growth in China, I think Chinese leaders, Chinese politicians in general, uh, found themselves under increasing challenge to uh, do a couple of things. First of all, to keep sustaining uh, the growth of the Chinese economy, but at the same time to begin addressing uh, much more directly some of the discontents that were beginning to emerge in the Chinese public. And that includes dealing with inequality, dealing with the growing disenchantment with the Communist Party because of corruption in particular. And insofar as Boishelai was one of those politicians who was sort of lab testing some of the ways in which politicians in China could begin dealing simultaneously with those problems, you know, I think he sort of offered not necessarily an exclusive role model for Xi Jinping and that new generation of leaders, but at least an example that they begin to study uh, no, for lessons, but also for mistakes as well. And I think one thing that Bo Xilai did try to demonstrate in Chongqing, and in a sense demonstrated with some political success, is that it would be possible to sort of revive communist um, traditionalism and um, evoking the, the revolutionary past while also keeping the economy growing and also somehow also continuing to court international investment and visitors like Henry Kissinger as well. 
So, you know, insofar as it made sense for leaders like Xi Jinping to try to figure out how they could start juggling all of these things at the national level, well, political leaders like Borshilai were, were showing in some ways how it could be done at the local level. So I, I think in that sense, uh, as I said, I don't think it was like a necessarily a direct or exclusive role, role model for Xi Jinping. But I think it does demonstrate that a number of leaders then, and the, in a sense, the um, Chinese political lead in general is trying to figure out ways to bring these two things together, sustained economic growth, uh, revived um, confidence in the Communist Party, and uh, reinforced authority over the population. Do you think that the party would have acquiesced to the centralization of authority under Xi in recent years, had it not been for the disorder and perceived infighting triggered by the Boshi Lai incident and also the Li Jihuai incident, which followed right after it? Yes, I do. And the reason I say that is because at the time in 2012, the, you know, the scandals that we knew about that blew up in our faces were the fall of Boshi Lai. And the later in 2012, not the direct, not the immediate downfall of Ling Jihua, Hu Jintao's lieutenant in power, but the scandal around his family and in particular his son. So that was later in 2012. I forget which month. Was it August? You better check your calendars on that. But anyway, uh, again, one of these stories that breaks out in rumors and then dribs and drabs of information about Ling Jihua's son is involved in this um, crash on the outskirts of Beijing involved in an extremely expensive sports car in which uh, if, if the rumors, if the stories that have relieved, he was in the car with, with a young woman, uh, both of them are sort of thrown out of the car, but there's this extraordinary scene of, of wreckage around there. I think there was a death involved as well. So that begins to crack open another seam of the corruption that had been growing in the Chinese political lead around then. Now, uh, what we didn't know about back then, but what becomes clear essentially, is that this corruption is also eating at other institutions in China and eating very deeply. So it's after Xi Jinping comes to power that there's these uh, extraordinary uh, investigations that take place into the military, uh, the military leadership, into state security, into the arms of power that are really the sinews of Communist Party control. I think it's pretty clear that even without the Borshilai scandal and Lin Jihua scandal, you know, leaders like Xi Jinping knew in a general sense what was happening in these institutions that were being rotted from within by corruption and cronyism, and so that there was a general sense that something had to be done about it. I think what the Borshilai and Ling Jihua scandals did is to add public impetus to that program and to demonstrate to the Chinese public more widely about just how serious corruption was becoming, why something needed to be done about it. Uh, we can talk about the specifics of the charges against Borshilai and his family, but it's certainly true that in the scale of corruption, as it's emerged in subsequent cases, it wasn't uh, anywhere near one of the most serious cases of, of corruption in terms of the amount of money that was involved in, in the indictment. Um, do you think that those who cooperated with Xi and others in bringing Bo down now regret it? 
it's a tricky question to answer, especially now I have to confess I'm, I'm not in China, haven't been in China for a couple of years now. So you know, talking to people about their regrets is, is a bit more difficult than before. I, I, I would say this, I, I think it's important to remember that when Xi Jinping came to power, he came to power borne by a lot of hopes um, that he was going to help clean up China and that there'd been this accumulation of unresolved issues in China, latent crises that cried out to be dealt with. And I remember late 2012 going to this sort of meeting in Beijing immediately after the party congress when or she, sorry, Xi Jinping is installed as party leader. And there's sort of these retired reformist officials and intellectuals and uh, going around this circle of people, each of them giving these short speeches about their expectations of the new leadership and what they wanted. And not everybody, but certainly generally the air in them, even in a meeting like that was one of hope for Xi Jinping and hope in particular that he would prove to be a leader who was willing to solve these problems, but at least incrementally also to push forward the process of uh, political and cultural liberalization in China. And although there were certainly people back then who thought Xi Jinping was going to be a very different, harder line leader, I think back then, even in informed circles in Beijing, those voices were probably the minority. And quite a lot of people invested their hopes that Xi Jinping was going to be if not a reformer, then a relatively moderate leader. Of, of course, it didn't take very long for those hopes to be dispelled and for Xi Jinping to emerge as a very different leader. Now, having said that, and finally getting to your question, uh, I think certainly in the uh, first few years of, of Xi Jinping's uh, time in power, I would say it's probably fair to say there was a lot of ambivalence among people in China even among officials about the direction of the anti-corruption campaign. On the one hand, it was a danger to people uh, because uh, corruption and grey income had become such an important source of wealth generation for Chinese officials. Uh, you know, it, could, it was very easily for anybody to be accused of corruption and for a case to be built against any particular official that they were corrupt. So I think that countered to develop, you know, that helped to develop this sense of fear that everybody is vulnerable to this new leader who's willing to, at least at some level, begin to um, take, take down officials who are involved in this kind of bribe taking and, uh, you know, helping, helping your friends with business deals and so on. At the same time, um, I, I mentioned the ambivalence. I do think there was also this sort of appreciation even among people who'd been benefiting from that corrupted system, that something had to change. You know, this sense that, yeah, it's been good for me personally and my family's been doing well, but my goodness, it's not good for the country as a whole and something has to be done. So I think, you know, there's this sort of sense of ambivalence and, and I think that persisted. So when you ask whether people have regrets, they may well have regrets at this point in Xi Jinping's term in power. But I certainly think, I think in those early years, there was still this sense that, yeah, well, you know, it was getting out of control and something had to be done about it. And 
you know, my income may be down and I'll have to pull my head in, but yeah, we understood that our new leader was going to deal with this anyway. Um, what are you reflecting on this incident 10 years later? Do we know how the party uh, reflects on major political incidents and how is it approaching the study of the Boise Lions 10 years later? Is this, is this a route that party historians are allowed to touch? Xu Jun can probably answer this better. I can't recall any detailed accounts in Chinese that um, have emerged about what happened in Chongqing. Uh, the other aspect of it that bears remarking here is that uh, when uh, Bo Xilai was in power, uh, there were dozens, if not hundreds, of local people, particularly business people, who were persecuted as part of this uh, campaign, Dahi, uh, this campaign against organized crime. And very many of them felt that they had been uh, victims of injustice and that the charges against them were, were, if not outright fabricated, then outrageously exaggerated in order to prosecute them, in order to strip them of their wealth. And so you have dozens, if not hundreds of these no, formerly very well-connected um, business families in, in Chongqing who were hoping for um, redress from, from the government for return of the assets, um, for release from prison, and for compensation as well. Xu uh, Jun may know better than me about this, but at least as of a few years ago, that whole process of redress was happening at um, a snail's pace, if, if not at all. And there seemed to be no appetite from um, the new leadership in Beijing to publicly deal with any of those injustices. Insofar as they've been dealt with at all, it's been very secretively behind the scenes. So getting back to your question about what lessons um, the party learns from a scandal like Borshilai, well, it seems pretty clear at this point that one of the lessons that this leadership has learned is that you, you don't air your dirty laundry in public. And if you are going to air your dirty laundry in public, it's going to be in a very controlled, very performative way in which it's the party uh, central leadership that controls the narrative controls who speaks out, and you're not going to have these uncontrolled interventions by members of the public, by aggrieved families or their lawyers. And so, uh, you know, the, the narrative about Bo Xilai, well, it does, uh, it does come up in, in party documents warning about corruption and abuses of power. Um, but in a sense, the lesson is also imprinted there in how the party doesn't air too many details about these things these days. So yeah, I, uh, yeah, I agree. I just uh, want to add a little bit since um, and after Moshele's downfall, I couldn't say Chongqing people again were divided, and the the working people on the streets I talked to people I don't know personally, they seem to be missing those uh, police platforms on the streets. And the, they said that those police uh, platforms uh, made them feel safer. That's uh, what I heard from quite a number of uh, people, you know, working people. On the other hand, from people, government employees, professors and professionals, they were so happy that the Bushilai was gone because 
the government's uh, spending wouldn't be as badly as one Bushler was there. And uh, also, you know, those crackdown was kind of scary to many business people. So, so again, the views on the street were divided uh, from people I was talking to. Yes, Shuja, I saw that you wrote in 2012, um, seemingly illogically, in the weeks since his downfall, Bo's local dissenters have been much quieter than his supporters. And I was wondering uh, if you could talk at all about like Bo Xilai nostalgia uh, in Chongqing. And I guess you just I talked about that a little bit, but. Yeah, they do actually. Even um, just before the pandemic, I visited Chongqing. I haven't been there for two years now. But it, before the pandemic, it, Every time when I visited Chongqing, I took taxis around. I always talked to the taxi drivers. And they were still kind of missing Boston like times, the taxi drivers. Um, and the, again, I don't know if you notice those ginkgo trees. They were really living monument for Boston like time. <laughs> so, yeah. And I kind of believe $10 billion, tens. After that year's uh, budget was spent on trees. And uh, of course, Bo Xilai probably got it. I heard uh, people say he got, when he was in Dalian, he did a, a great job to, you know, install lungs, grass, like uh, Chris mentioned. And uh, he probably expanded on that to make himself more popular. I might just add a, a few memories uh, about that time then that sort of um, also reflect what Xu Jun is saying. And I'd, I'd visited Chongqing in previous years, but always sort of kind of passing through or not spending too much time. And it's such a, a crazy, intimidating city that I'd never sort of gotten to know it well. But I got to know it very well in, in 2012 and got to really like the people there as well. But I remember in those months of um, making visits to go to Chongqing to try to figure out what was happening. You know, it was an extraordinary year in Chinese politics, an extraordinary year for reporting on Chinese politics as well. Because it's it, even then it was a very secretive system, a very closed off system. It's not as if um, foreign journalists, um, certainly anybody like me, would have doors open to them to speak candidly to officials. Uh, but back then, back, back in those days in Chongqing when the scandal was unfolding and immediately after, in those months immediately after Bo Xilai is toppled from power, there were these occasional opportunities to talk to people in power, you know, officials or people very close to the government. And to realize uh, talking to them that while you'd thought that they'd been having a fine time in power and that they were, may have been sort of um, thinking well of Bo Xilai as a patron of theirs, a lot of them exuded, you could see it in the expressions when they talked about their experiences, this, this fear that they'd been living under in this system in which Bo Xilai and um, the mercurial police chief Wang Lijun exerted so much power and could take somebody, um, pull somebody from power overnight. And uh, this sense that, that that sense seemed to permeate the entire government system. And so after Boy Shulai, um fell from power, 
it seems there was a great deal of elation and cheering within the public security system in in Chongqing because now Wang Lijun and Boy Xilai, two people who <laughs> both raised their profile but also placed them under terrifying pressure, had been removed from power and they felt relief. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was the other side of thing, it as well. And then there was experience of talking to the families of these business people who'd been persecuted as members of crime gangs and just realizing, you know, these were people who'd been living pretty well off, had a lot of money and had quite a lot of the privilege that went with it. And they'd seen their, um, their loved ones, usually their husbands or their fathers, you know, imprisoned, tortured, uh, traumatized by the experience of what went on. And again, they had to see how, you know, that, 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 that look of fear in their, their eyes when they recalled what it was like and what they were still living under. You realize that, you know, this is a system where people can learn to live with a great deal of privilege, but also with this understanding that privilege can be snatched away from them in an instant. Um, Chris, do you mind if I ask you a little bit of a non sequitur? Um, in light of your recent report on historical nihilism and the collapse of the Soviet Union, this internal party documentary that you just published your reporting on, um, how did Bo's treatment of red history and red culture align with or diverge from the party's efforts to protect and take pride in its past? Bloody hell, am I going to answer this one? It's a big question. Uh, I, I can only start hazarding a, an answer, an incomplete answer, which is, this campaign um, against so-called historical nihilism, in other words, these um, negative portrayals of the party's revolutionary past, uh, has gone on in China for some time, but it's certainly um, gained increasing traction over the past two decades. And I think that sort of reflects some of the generational anxieties that you also see reflected in Boishilai's campaign to revive red culture. Now, both Xi Jinping and Boi Shilai are two leaders from a similar generation in China. They grew up um, under Mao Zedong. They grew up under, under officials who remained extremely loyal to Mao and the Cultural Revolution, even as their families suffered grievously during the Cultural Revolution. And so that sense of that the revolution has to be protected, no matter what your family suffered, um, personally, I think is part of their mental makeup as well. And I think in both of them and more broadly in that generation of Chinese leaders, there's this anxiety now that China is now increasingly unmoored from that revolutionary past. And that revolutionary past confers the party with sort of uh, an authority, a sense of historical destiny that is very important to its political power. And if that begins to erode in the next generations of students, officials, and Chinese citizens more generally, there's this worry that the party's power is then also under threat. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't join the two, two things together directly, but I do think they both sort of reflect this anxiety about preserving the party's revolutionary heritage against attacks from the outside, against critical historians, but also, um, most particularly just simply against the passage of time. I did want to add, just add a, another comment about the Bo Xilai and this sort of question of a legacy that he leaves for Xi Jinping and other leaders. I guess the other thing that um, 
Boishil I brought to the table for China's next generation of leaders. And he's not the only one who did this, but I think he was an important one in this process, is bringing um, into China's political repertoire this kind of much sharpened set of skills in what I would call sort of um, performative policy delivery, in which you announce policies, uh, announce initiatives, announce goals. But a big part of that is also a political campaign, a public relations campaign to show that you're serious about it and that change is happening and that you're delivering benefits for the people. And, um, you know, that sort of campaign style of performative policy delivery is certainly not um, a new thing in China. It goes back decades. But I do think that um, Bo Xilai was one of those politicians who honed it, honed it to a new skill. And I remember, you know, Bo Xilai does get a lot of credit for a lot of these social welfare programs in Chongqing that built housing for migrant workers that established this land sharing program for farmers that you know, made land development in Chongqing much more equitable. And I remember particularly in 2012, going around and having a look at some of these programs, or even 2011 actually, and thinking, this doesn't seem to be all it's added up to. In particular, this land sharing, this land redistribution program that got a lot of national press in China, the, the, the DPR program. I, it was so convolutedly complicated. I'm not going to try to explain to you how it worked here, but it was basically a, a land stock exchange in which um, shares of land could be apportioned out to developers and some of the benefits would go to local farmers. It sounded like a great idea, but you would go to these areas where this program was supposed to be going gangbusters and the farmers would not have heard about it. And not just at one village, but the next village and the next village. And people would say, well, you know, occasionally people will say, well, yeah, I've, I've heard a little bit about it, but I have no idea what it is. And then you would go into the, uh, the land stock exchange itself, and it was completely moribund. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that that means all of the initiatives in Chongqing were complete um, Potemkin villages. But there was a sense, I think, with a lot of the programs that the presentation was getting as much attention as the actual substance especially as Boshila was trying to build his credentials ahead of the party Congress in 2012. All right. Uh, last to close us off. Have we seen the last of Boshila? Uh, I haven't even checked which prison he's held in at the moment. And no doubt that's a, a matter of rumor rather than hard and fact, but assuming he's in Chintong or another high level Chinese prison, I'd assume he's going to be there for a long time. Uh, and part of the reason for that, that is if you go back and have a look at his trial in 2013, he was defiant until the very end. You know, usually you look at these um, uh, trial reports and transcripts involving um, fallen Chinese officials and they're full of contrition from the officials and expressions of remorse. Uh, Bo Xilai didn't really... Uh, show that much remorse in that trial. There was a sense, sense that he was, if he was going to go down, he was going to go down fighting. And I think uh, even assuming uh, that Xi Jinping moves on at some point and another leader might have another look at this, I don't think any future Chinese Communist Party leader would have any appetite to let Boshi Light out into the public again. Yeah, uh, I just remember some 
last year or two years ago, I saw on the Chinese internet that Boshi Lai was uh, um, planting vegetables uh, with uh, uh, Dong Yong Kang in the prison. That's what I saw. I don't know. It, I mean, how fact it is. It's on the Chinese internet. Steam right. quitting first time with ginkgo trees. I was just thinking that it would be good if there were ginkgo trees. <laughs> and given his age, I don't think he has a chance to come back. No, you know, he's pretty old. Juju and Chris and Alex, thanks so much for being a part of China. Hi, this is Callan, China Talks editor. Before his downfall, one of Bo Xilai's best known initiatives was to encourage people to listen to and sing red songs. So for this episode's outro music, we have one of those songs that was part of the campaign. And if the male voice seems at all familiar to you, that's because it's Hong Kong film star Jackie Chan singing. Enjoy! Yeah.